Thank you, worship team. And good morning. Uh, you probably noticed my voice is a little deeper today than usual. This is not the first time it's happened, and uh, so please bear with me this, this morning. Just praying I'd be able to speak. So um, please stand with me right now and, and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Now, for the, for the next four weeks uh, through the day after Christmas, we're going to be focusing on a two-part question. Who is Jesus, and what does he want for Christmas? And we're going to be based in Matthew chapter 11. And, uh, and before I read this, let me just say that Matthew chapters 11 and 12 reveal who Jesus is. And they are, they are set in motion by John's question uh, in chapter 11, verse 3, who are you, Jesus, basically. So this today we're going to see Jesus, the promised Messiah. Next week, Jesus, the coming judge. The 19th, Jesus, the revealing Savior. And then the day after Christmas, actually, Jesus, the giving Lord. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And today we're going to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 19. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet... This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Lord God, we thank you that we had the privilege just now to read your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is not the word of man, but it is your word, the word of God, perfect, holy, protected and preserved by you. What you use as, but through your spirit in the lives of believers to lead us into all the truth. We thank you, Lord, that as we come today, we, we do come as needy people. We do come as people seeking a word from you. And we thank you, Lord, that you are going to do that. You're going to give us a word from you, even as we read This is from you, and it's for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word this day for your glory and the good of all people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we're looking at Matthew chapter 11, but just another comment about Matthew chapters 11 and 12. They not only reveal who Jesus is, but what he wants from us. And since it's Christmas time, it is appropriate for us to ask, what does Jesus want for Christmas? Now, who is Jesus and what does he want for Christmas? Two things I never asked much before coming to faith in Christ, becoming a believer. I didn't ask those questions. My questions were more like this. Who am I and what do I want for Christmas? I went to church, but I was just trying to make sense of life and survive each day. I was spiritually aimless, pretty much, and uh, I was quick to switch allegiances in my high school and college years based on whatever wind or wave of ideas or, or philosophy came my way and sounded good. And you may not have been able to tell it just by looking at me, but I was, um, I was aimless and, and had no anchor for my soul. That was what was going on inside. And, and uh, it wasn't until God broke through my dead heart and... and um, opened my eyes to the truth about him that things changed but even then when I was a uh, as a young believer as a as a 20 year old college student it was really easy back then to 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 think about Christmas and really to be more excited about what I was going to get in terms of presents even at that age and it's it's interesting that even today it has um it that's just morphed into uh what am I going to get my kids? And I'm excited about what I'm going to get them uh, for Christmas. And so I think it's important to ask the question, who is Jesus and, and what does he want for Christmas? And what does he want from us? And if we are more wrapped up in that, if we are more wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he wants, I believe it's going to make our celebration of his birth and our interactions with others while we're doing that uh, so much more meaningful and intentional and and engaging and, and really grounded in biblical reality. And, and that's really the aim. And uh, we'll be in a good place where God can use us for his kingdom purposes. So what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 11, 7 through 19, is that Jesus truly is the promised Messiah. The deliverer, the one that was going to save his people from their sins. And, and he expects something from us. And as we move through the process of explaining this passage... Um, you're going to see that this passage has three seemingly disconnected sections, uh, rather puzzling words, but they point to one truth, that Jesus is who the prophets foretold he would be. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Jesus asks a question. In verses 11 through 15, he makes a statement, and in verses 16 through 19, he makes an observation. And I think before we look at our passage today, it would be helpful to review the immediate context. Um, in, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11, John the Baptist was expressing confusion regarding Jesus' identity. And he was in prison while Jesus was going about healing throughout Galilee. And so John was wondering if maybe he misunderstood Jesus' program. Maybe he, um, maybe he got it wrong because he had announced Jesus as this deliverer that would come with, with, with judgment, that would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And here's Jesus uh, not doing that yet. And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. 
if he is the promised Messiah or should they look for another one? Is there another one coming? And, and it was a bit shocking if you think about it. It's hard for some of us to admit that John might have doubted at that point. Um, but, but basically the idea is that when we looked at that, we were dealing in comforting truth. We were dealing in truth as telling us uh, Christians sometimes have doubts. And, and God has a, a great way of dealing with us in our doubts. Jesus has a perfect way of dealing with us in our doubts. And that we saw that doubt is not the absence of faith. It, it's, it's a lack of it. It's a, maybe a weakness, but it's not a, an absence of it. it. It's not rejection or denial of Christ. It, it, to doubt is not to sin, but to keep doubting can become sin. And the cure that we saw is what Jesus gave to John is, is in, this, in the form of reassurance. To reassure him and combined with remembering what God has done and realigning himself with Jesus, he would have an accurate view of who Jesus is. And, and, and Jesus helped us to see that, that that was what we need is to refocus ourselves upon who he is and upon his truth and, and really that helps us get back in line with him. So what happens is Jesus sends a message to John. He says to John's disciples, go and tell John because John is in prison. And so what he, the message was basically recounting what he was doing. Giving the blind sight. Making the lame to walk. Cleansing lepers. Giving sight to the blind and also making the deaf hear. Raising the dead. And preaching the gospel to the poor. Things that the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would do. And so Jesus says, tell John what you see and hear. And, and Jesus did those things in their presence. They saw him do those things. And so he sends them back as eyewitnesses of his miracles. And he knew John had faith. But he needed reassurance, and so he gives no other explanation but what the prophets had foretold. And this will be enough for John to help him realign himself with Jesus, regain his bearings. And so we rejoin Jesus at verse 7. While the disciples of John the Baptist, I think this is, this is wild, while the disciples of John the Baptist are, are en route to go talk to John, Jesus now starts talking about John to the crowds. So maybe even as, he, they haven't even brought the news yet. John hasn't got the reassurance yet. And Jesus is going to start talking to the crowds about John. And, and the interesting thing to notice here is that, is that Jesus is talking about John, but Matthew is talking about Jesus. And Jesus is really the main point of this passage, even though it's about John. It's very interesting. Um, Jesus sent a mini-sermon to John, and now he preaches a mini-sermon about John. And we see him ask a question. This is what we see in verses 7 through 9. And he asks really the same question three different ways. He states it three different ways. In verse 7 he says, Who did you go out to see? What were you going out to see? What, what, were, you, what were you going to see? What, what did you think you were going to see? A, a, a reed shaken by the wind. A weak reed. Tall reed grasses grew along the shores of the Jordan River. And they easily blew wherever the... Where, they bent wherever the wind blew. 
Did they come to see a weak man without convictions, Jesus is asking? No. John was, was not a reed. He was more like a redwood. Now this, by the way, is a display of Jesus' kindness. He could have described John as one who wavered. Yes, he doubted, but the majority of the time he was strong. Verse 8, he asked, did, did you come out to see a man in soft clothing? No. This wasn't a fashion show. He didn't hang out in king's palaces. John wore the rough clothes of the wilderness. Verse 9, Jesus says, Did you come out to see a prophet who spoke for one who spoke for God? Yes. That's what they came out to see. And Jesus says, More than a prophet. Jesus explains how John is more than a prophet. It, it was because he was also prophesied. John was also prophesied. He was more than one who spoke God's word. He was one of whom God's word spoke. John was the pr promised prophet to introduce Jesus. God's next to last man. Verse 10, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as his forerunner. And he's quoting from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 when he says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Malachi didn't have the use in it, by the way. Jesus personalized it, made it about himself because it was about him. The father speaking to the son says that he would send his messenger. And in this we can see what Matthew was trying to emphasize. If the next to last person before the Messiah is on stage, then who is the last man? Who, who is the Messiah? If John is more than a prophet, what does that make Jesus? The promised Messiah. God wants us to ask that question as we read these verses. Well, if John's more, what does that make Jesus? It's like asking, do you understand who Jesus is? If John is more than a prophet, Jesus is more than more than a prophet. John was God's messenger to prepare the way, prepare the way for Jesus. So Matthew is saying as he recounts the words of Jesus himself that Jesus is God. That he is Emmanuel. God with us as chapter 1 and verse 23 told us. See, what Matthew is, is bringing out and what Jesus is making clear is that we need to think God when we think Jesus. The coming of Jesus to earth is the coming of God to earth. As Ed explained so well last week, Jesus is fully God. He is, he is fully man and he is our sacrifice and, and he is the ever-present Savior. That's who he is. Hebrews chapter 1 says that, that Jesus is God's definitive speech. That in these last days, he has spoken through his son, through whom he made the world. The idea is that, that the prophets spoke and God spoke through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, Jesus is God's definitive speech. He is the last word on everything. You know, you're in a group and someone asks a question and a child says, the answer is Jesus. And I was in a setting like that the other day. 
and uh, the question came out and a, a child raised it was Friday night actually it was, and uh, the, the child came out and, 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 and answered the question Jesus and I turned to someone and said that's the right answer always the right answer Jesus is God's definitive speech he's the last word on everything and he's the living word the word made flesh the God incarnate and so Jesus' question is really do you understand who I am? Now next comes a statement he makes. A statement he makes. And that statement is about the kingdom. He makes it in verses 11 through 15, and it's a somewhat puzzling statement. In verse 11, Jesus says, truly, I love it when Jesus begins a sentence, truly. He's praying backwards. He's starting with amen. That's the word amen. Amen, among those born of women, there is none greater, right? Verse 11. Among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than who? John the Baptist. Now, the phrase among those born of women is, is, is key to our understanding of what he's saying. This is a Jewish figure of speech that contrasts normal human birth with spiritual birth. It's contrasting the normal human birth of one born on earth with spiritual birth, those born into the kingdom. Those who are born again, as John 3 says. And Jesus says there's no one greater than John the Baptist in that, in that category. Now, when he talks about greater, it's really easy for us to think great. That means you've done a lot of great things. This is not talking about human accomplishment but more in, in light of the period of time, John arrived at the best time, the pinnacle of time, the right time, right before Jesus came on the scene. They overlapped. They were contemporaries. The arrival of Jesus means the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, which is incomparably greater than any time before it. The time that the promised Messiah came to earth was the high point of history to that point in time. There's another high point of history coming when Jesus comes again, his second coming. But Jesus adds to his statement by saying this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Greater than John the Baptist. What does that mean? Okay, think of it this way. John was greater than all the Old Testament prophets because he got to meet Jesus face to face. He was personally involved in the fulfillment of what he spoke of. That's pretty awesome. Pretty privileged position there. And, um, but believers, all who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, are greater than John because they get to experience something that John didn't get to experience. They get to experience and understand the death of Christ in their place. Something that John only foresaw. That's why the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. says this concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours 
searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Peter is speaking to believers here. In the things that you have now, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Jesus is saying the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, the born again believer in Christ is greater than John the Baptist because they see and experience and get to understand the death of Christ in their place. It's a gospel truth. Now Jesus goes on and, and it gets a, a, the water gets a bit more murky because he says in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. The problem with that verse is it can be taken like three different ways. And uh, does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is advancing forcibly? Or that, that, that it's suffering violence and, and you've got to go one way or the other and I'm just going to try to explain a little bit about it because you can translate this it is forcibly entered or has been forcibly advancing um, and so since it can be taken many ways uh, let me just explain one aspect of it ever since the kingdom of heaven was announced in John's ministry let's just keep it in the immediate context it had been the target of persecution and opposition from the religious establishment so take it as it reads, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. It is John has been persecuted by Herod Antipas. He's in prison. Herod Antipas was a violent man who would now, who would soon put John to death violently. And Jesus would suffer cruelty from man at the cross. That's the nature of what was happening. In verse 13, Jesus says all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John was the last of the prophets who prophesied of a coming Savior. Messianic prophecy stopped when Jesus arrived. And Jesus says in verse 14, if you are willing to accept it. And, and, and there's code here. Code here is if you believe. If you believe, then John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. That takes us back to Malachi. And Malachi prophesied that Elijah would prepare the way for Messiah. It's, Jesus quoted it in chapter 3 and verse 1, and then, and then Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a, a decree of utter destruction a curse Jesus said if you're willing to accept it John the Baptist is Elijah now what Malachi was not saying and what Jesus was not saying is that Elijah would be reincarnated it's not there or that he would have some miraculous return to earth via whirlwind like the way he left earth you know Elijah didn't die John himself said he wasn't Elijah 
John chapter 1 and verse 21, John the Baptist said, he wasn't Elijah. They asked him, are you Elijah? But here's the way he is Elijah. He fulfills the prophecies of Malachi concerning Elijah. Before he was born, he was set apart before birth as the one who'd minister in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1.17. So that anyone who receives John's ministry as the forerunner to Jesus, as the Messiah, sees him as the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. And then Jesus says in verse 15 those words that that he uses actually when it's another code word that he uses when he tells parables to, to mean be on the alert listen carefully he said he who has ears to hear let him hear you got ears can you hear then hear it and, and it's, the, it's speaking of spiritual understanding not just hearing the words and letting them go out the other or just well I don't know what that means it's, it's hearing and understanding it's listening and understanding and, and Jesus' statement shows that he has come really as the main point of the Bible. He was ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, I'm the main point of the Bible. This is not about John the Baptist. This is about Jesus. See, we're to see the whole Bible, especially the Old Testament law and prophets, as pointing to Jesus the Messiah. And so the statement Jesus makes is basically like this. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. That Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. And his people are all those who believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And your will must be involved in the hearing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And, and, and again, code word for when he tells parables. And some we're going to think, oh, this is just about John. And there's a deeper meaning here about Jesus. This is, this is about Jesus. Your will must be involved in your hearing. And Jesus is kind of saying this. If, if John is everything I say he is, everything I just said about him, prophet, more than a prophet, preparer of the way of the Lord, greatest man ever born prior to the kingdom, the last prophet, then what does that make me? The coming one. The king of the kingdom. The Messiah. The promised deliverer. The one who would save his people from their sins. John has been talking direct, Jesus has been talking directly of John, but those of faith will understand that he is really speaking of himself and that true hearing leads to true faith. Last thing Jesus does is make an observation. He, he makes an observation, he draws a very interesting word picture in verses 16 through 19. He, he tells a parable of sorts as well and makes a proverbial observation comparing that present generation. He's basically saying, you know, people nowadays, the people today are like, are like kids who refuse to play the game their playmates wanted to play. Think about it. Kids, your, your friend says, hey, let's play this game. No, I don't want to play. You're in a bad mood. And you're like, I, I just don't, don't want to play. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they say, well, let's just do this, this other thing. I don't want to do that either. You know, and nothing will make you happy. We all know people like that, right? Nothing will, will please them. They're always upset, right? People like that. Well, Jesus is saying, what am I going to compare this generation to? I'll tell you. They're like kids playing with their playmates who don't want to play the games they want to play. They want to go with the program. 
And so, he says in verse 17, we played the flute for you. Playing the flute, you know, that's pretty cool, right? You know, some of you play the flute. And, well, you didn't dance when we played. You refused to dance. Playing dancing music. By the way, played the flute. There are so many code words in, in this passage. Play the flute was code word for Jesus who came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Where there would be joy forever for those who believe. That's why some call him the Lord of the dance. They refused to dance. They, they refused to believe. And then he, then, the, then he says, well, the kids are saying, like, well, we sang a dirge. That's a funeral song. And, and you didn't mourn. Saying a dirge is code for John came with a message of judgment, basically turn or burn. And they would not believe. They wouldn't mourn over their sin like Jesus said those who know him do in, in chapter 5 and verse 4. They denied they had anything to confess. Dance then refers to Jesus' joyful style of ministry, eating and drinking with sinners, of which he was accused for. Mourn refers to John's call to repentance and more plain style of ministry, kind of more austere style of ministry, out in the wilderness, away from the people, out in the boonies. And then, in verse 18, Jesus said, John came neither eating nor drinking. What that means is, he didn't live like most people lived. He didn't live an ordinary life. But, John, but Jesus did come eating and drinking, which means he lived an ordinary life. He lived like people usually live. And John's style of ministry was so different than Jesus's, but they had the same message. Jesus said in John chapter 4, and verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John said the same thing. But see, the Pharisees didn't like that Jesus mixed with ordinary folks. What they should have seen is the very thing that they were expecting from Jesus, a strict abstinence and lifestyle that was very strict, was what they had rejected in John. They wouldn't be pleased no matter what style of ministry the gospel came. In the last phrase of verse 19, Jesus says, Wisdom is proved right by her actions deeds her literally her children wisdom is vindicated by her children the offspring of wisdom true wisdom is proven true by its outcome wisdom was often personified in judaism you can read it in in proverbs to show that those who follow god's way are guided by his will and then they so act on that well the observation really that jesus is making here Specifically with the idea that wisdom is proved right by her children, there were changed lives. There were, there were miracles being done, to be sure, but there were changed lives. That's what was happening. Jesus was changing people's lives. And genuine followers go with God's program over their own opinions. Genuine disciples believe Jesus. The temptation was to dismiss both Jesus and John. Many did. And what Jesus is really doing here is closing his sermon about John, which was really about him, with an altar call. He was calling them forward and saying, make a decision. Calling people forth to act upon what he had just said. Calling them to a decision. 
See, the people had been, the people of Israel had been more privileged than any generation had been. They had John the Baptist and Jesus in the flesh. In person. No other generation had been so blessed. Many who had been baptized when they heard John and many who had been impacted by what Jesus had been preaching and saying and doing didn't really believe. The overall result up to that point had been more passing interest than permanent change. If you think about it, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that that Jesus indicates that if you, humanly speaking, if you think about this, their ministry wasn't, John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry wasn't that successful at the time. Weren't a lot of people going with the program. Many were fascinated by Jesus, but had they come to faith? Only he knew. Had they believed? I think if you put these three seemingly disconnected sections together, the main point is this. Jesus wants people to listen to him so they would understand who he is and become his true disciples, become his true followers. Jesus wants us to linger on this life-altering truth that he is speaking of and many that contains these code words that are somewhat difficult to understand. But he wants us to be living it. And I want to just share several things as we close that are related to our lives as we look towards Christmas and daily living as well. And in view of these, these, these things that Jesus said that, that throw out this expectation that he wants us to listen to him so that we would understand and, and be his genuine disciples. Uh, first, in view of his expectation for us to understand who he is. Let me just say this, and, and, and someone else said it this week. Actually, Brian Zuniga said it, but I'm, I'm taking it from him. It's, it's hard to be a Christian at Christmas. It's hard to be a Christian at Christmas. It's tough to be a Christian at Christmas. And, and, and he also mentioned that during other times of the year when things blatantly not God-honoring are paraded before us, it seems easier to stand up for our convictions and live what we believe. Why is it difficult to be a Christian at Christmas? Well, it's because there's so many temptations that can pull us away from worshiping Jesus. So many trappings, so many either traditions or, uh, you know, uh, uh, consumer-type things that can draw us away from, from Jesus and unbiblical influences that are not in line with Jesus that actually dishonor God. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life are so enticing and deceptive that it takes large amounts of spirit-induced and spirit-produced self-control to not get swept up in loving the world at Christmas time. The very time we're saying we're remembering Jesus' birth, the incarnation, God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. In our consumerist context, we must remember that our life, as Jesus said in the context of, um, of, uh, of being on guard against greed, does not consist of, in the things we possess. And we may be tempted, by the way, to treat only the symptoms of that and rather than the true disease of soul that the worldly trappings of Christmas time expose. 
And I will just say we're fooling ourselves if we think uh, and don't acknowledge that it's more an inward battle than an outward one. It's not just, oh, I'm not going to have this or this at Christmas. It's an inward thing. It's a worship thing. What are we truly worshiping at Christmas time? The response of some people, you know, well, is, I know what I'll do. I'll boycott all things unbib- not explicitly biblical at Christmas time, and that will, that will, you know, keep me from that. But what you risk then is eliminating some implicitly biblical things or, cut your, or cutting yourself off from people that you need to live and give the gospel to. So what we need to do is exercise wisdom. Wisdom, that we, we can be guilty of idolatry even if we have nothing at Christmas time. Even if we get nothing at Christmas time, we could be guilty of idolatry. And we must exercise caution because our adversary is a deceiver. We're always in a spiritual war. We're always in a spiritual battle, even in a season that is so comforting at times because there's so many trappings that comfort us because they're traditions that we like. That's not a bad thing. But many things draw us away from a Christ-centered, gospel-focused, Bible-based way of living. And I, I will just say this. Acknowledge that it's difficult and you're one step closer to victory this Christmas. Now, the second thing I want to point out is, is in view of Jesus' expectation for us to listen to him. Um, listening demands focus. By the way, you're all listening really, really well this morning. At least I... You could be playing some other movie in your head, I know, but you you look like you're listening really, really intently, you know? But listening demands focus. And and listening, uh, focusing is the the idea I want to bring out, is that we need to focus on Jesus at Christmas time. But here's the thing. Focusing on Jesus is a countercultural act. We've got to recognize that as well. It doesn't come naturally to us. It is easy to be a consumer or to focus on being ritualistic at Christmas time. We need to focus on Jesus. Now, we in, in the Brethren Baptist Free Church traditions approach the faith from an informal rather than formal perspective. We, we literally shun what we're called low church versus high church, right? And we shun formality, but at the same time, we set up our own formalities, our own traditions when it comes to practicing, practicing our faith. And uh, one example I will uh, give you is uh, that, that's often avoided by our style of people is Advent. It's known as Advent. Um, it's something liturgical churches do, you know, and celebrating while in, in our style of church, it's a toss-up. Some do, some don't, what, you know. But traditionally, it's just the four Sundays prior to Christmas are known as the four Sundays of Advent. And I tell you, it can be very, like, Stiff and rigid and traditional and liturgical and what have you. Uh, some people, some people, and, and we've done this we, in our family. We've, you make an Advent wreath with candles, and it's a great object lesson for kids, right? Uh, with each, a candle for each week, or we do it day by day. And by by the time Christmas comes, the first candle is really small, and you read the Bible and you, you you read verses about Jesus. You know, you focus on Jesus at Christmas versus all the presents underneath the tree, right? So, but here's the thing. That can be a really good object lesson, especially for kids. Um, and we've done that. But Advent literally is a Latin word meaning coming. Okay? And it's supposed to be all about Jesus. It's supposed to be all about looking back at how God orchestrated the first coming of Christ to earth. 
and, and then stopping to recognize the present ministry of Jesus and what he is doing and then looking forward to the second coming of Christ in his perfect time. So why would some people not want to do that? Well, I know why. Because for some, it brings back memories of, of rituals where a relationship with Christ was sadly absent or, or seemed absent. And, and in churches where there was more about formality than about a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. So I get that. I understand why someone would say, ooh, I don't want anything to do with that because it reminds me of before. I, I know that. But I would just say this. Whatever you call it, call it Advent, call it looking forward to Christmas, call it focusing on Jesus at Christmas time, it ought to be, for Christians, Christmas ought to be very Christ-centered, and, and focusing on Jesus is a very subversive act. It is a very countercultural act. You say that you believe that Jesus Christ is the one promised to forgive people of sins and is the only way to heaven? You're being very countercultural and subversive. You revolutionaries, you. Saying, and, and when, you when you focus on Jesus at Christmas, you are saying that worshiping him is the most important thing to do at Christmas and all year long. And if only it was that simple and it would just switch the, flip the switch and then, and that's what you do, right? But it, it's, it's, it's countercultural and it's, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't go with the way we think sometimes. It is an activity of calculated restraint. Calculated restraint. On purpose restraint. Seeking for God to prepare our souls for his service as we contemplate, forgive me, but the reason for the season. It forces us to live on God's timetable rather than ours. It's asking, how might I live to the glory of God? And it is with this mindset that we ask that twofold question Who is Jesus and what does he want for Christmas? And, and briefly, the last thing I'll mention is just the fact that, that Christ's true disciples cling to him. They, they cling to him. They, they're governed by the word of God. They're, they're governed by the testimony of Jesus. They, they have the same inclinations as other people at times, but they exercise spirit-enabled and produced self-control. And so they resist going their own way. They, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say, trust in the Lord with all their heart and lean not on their own understanding. In all their ways, they acknowledge him and he makes their path straight. Genuine followers align themselves with Jesus. They realize, as Jesus said, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They believe and they live in light of that belief here on earth. And they deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. They die to self and live to God. I've changed my signature line on my emails recently. You might have noticed. Now it says, all praise to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in God's word alone, for God's glory alone. And I changed that 
because it's too easy to, to ignore, to, to not remember, and I've got, I gotta, I gotta remember. And so it's to remind me, and you, the truth. Those who are truly thankful for what God has done for them say this, they say, I, I, I've been saved by God's grace. Therefore, I wanna please him. Therefore, I don't wanna bring dishonor to his name in any way. So the bottom line is this. Genuine followers of Christ follow Christ. In the midst of temptation, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of persecution, genuine followers of Christ follow Christ. The promised Messiah. The one who would save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Lord God, we just pray that you, by your grace, would give us grace to live, to do, to obey, to respond to you and who you are and and what you want from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.